Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to talk about supply chain disruptions. A very sexy topic, as you no doubt have guessed. Uh, but we're going to talk about why why they're happening, why things aren't get, getting where they need to go, why store shelves are empty, why prices are going up, and all that sort of things. And ultimately, why this matters beyond just mere economic issues. We're going to talk about how supply chain matters to politics and how you can look back at history and pull some of these examples out and why this supply chain crunch here is going to matter a lot moving forward. Uh, So, you know, unless they magically fix it overnight, which hasn't seemed to have come forward yet. So that's the major agenda for the show, the light item segment. We're going to take a look back at the first inaugural speech of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933. Uh, I think that fits in sort of with the theme of some of the things we're going to talk through today. So the light item kind of blends in with the main thing today. Uh, But I like looking back at some of these historical speeches and sort of connecting them with major events. So, that is the agenda for this week's show, so we can jump right in. So, like I said, we're going to talk about supply chain issues, supply chain disruptions that are happening across the world. And the one that you may be most familiar with, because it's been covered in the media, uh, is the supply chain crunch that we're experiencing in one of our major ports out of Los Angeles, California. Long I- the Long Island area, uh, Los Angeles Port area there in California. So um, there have been a couple of major news stories out there. You can go to the Wall Street Journal. They have a sort of an aerial drone flyover thing where they kind of went through the entire port to kind of look at what was happening. They talked about some of the numbers of the the issues that were, are happening there. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot that you can see and, and, and learn from that. But one of the one of there was something on Twitter where a, a CEO of a major transportation company called Flexport um, went there too, and he he went and he talked through all of his observations and ways that he sees that need to be fixed. This so Flexport is a shipping and container company. They they work in this district, you know, this direct area. They they do sort of more of a tech angle there. Uh, but anyway, their their CEO is Ryan Peterson. I'll link to the to Twitter thread that he, he had through here. But he visited this report, took, took a ship out, was looking at what was happening, was talking with people on the ground, and trying to figure out why there's this major hang-up here in the United States. So this is only looking at the American side of this issue. So not looking at the, the Chinese side of this or some of these other countries or any other major port. This is only looking at what is directly happening here in the United States and, and what is happening here. So here he is. 
Here's Ryan Peterson. So he, he starts out and he says, yesterday I rented a boat. So he did this on the 22nd, so a couple of days ago. He said, yesterday I rented a boat and took the leader of one of Flexport's partners in Long Beach on a three-hour tour of the pork complex. So here's what I learned. He said, first off, the boat captain said we were the first company to ever rent his boat to tour the port to see how everything was working up close. His usual business is doing memorial services at D.C. He said we were a lot more fun than his regular customers. The ports of L.A. and Long Beach are at a standstill. In a full three-hour loop through the port complex, passing every single terminal, we saw less than a dozen containers get unloaded. Now, those containers, what you see in those big shipping Uh, those big container ships that are going in and out of there. So those carry thousands upon thousands of those containers. And so if you're only seeing less than a dozen of those containers get unloaded, it's not a lot happening. He says he also saw hundreds of cranes. He only counted seven that were operating, and those that were operating seemed to be going pretty slow. It seems that everyone now agrees that the bottleneck is yard space in the container terminals. The terminals are simply overflowing with containers, which means they no longer have space to take in new containers, either from ships or land. It's a true traffic jam. Right now, if you have a chassis with no empty container on it, you can go pick up containers at any port terminal. However, if you have an empty container on that chassis, they're not allowing you to return it except on a highly restricted basis. If you can't get the empty containers off the chassis, you don't have a chassis to go pick up the next container. And if nobody goes picks up the next container, the port remains jammed. With the yard so full, carriers and terminals are being highly restrictive in where and when they will accept empties. Also, containers are not fungible between carriers, so the truckers have to drop off their their empty containers at the right terminal. This is causing empty containers to pile up. This one trucking partner alone has 450 containers sitting on the chassis right now as of 1021 at his yards. There is a trucking company with six yards that represent 153 owner-operator drivers. So he has almost three containers sitting on the chassis at his yard for every driver on the team. He can't take their containers off the chassis because he's not allowed to by the City of Long Beach zoning code to store empty containers more than too high in his truck yard. If he violates this code, they'll shut down his yard altogether. With the chassis all tied up with storing empties, that can't be returned to the port, and there are no chassis available to pick up containers at the port. And with all the containers piling up in the terminal yard, the longshoremen can't unload the ship, and so the queue grows longer. With now over 70 ships containing 500,000 containers waiting offshore, this line is going to get longer, not shorter. This is a negative feedback loop that is rapidly cycling out of control that, if it continues unabated, will destroy the global economy. Alrighty then, how do we fix this, you might ask? Simple, and we can do it fast right now. When you're designing an operation, you must choose your bottleneck. If the bottleneck appears somewhere that you didn't choose it, you're running an operation. You're not running an operation, it's running you. You should always choose the most capital-intensive part of the line to be your bottleneck. In a port, that's the ship-to-shore cranes. The cranes should never be, be unable to run because they're waiting for another part of the operation to catch up. The bottleneck right now is not the cranes. It's the yard space at the container terminals, and it's empty chassis to come clear those containers out. In operations, when a bottleneck appears somewhere that you didn't design for it to appear, you must overwhelm that bottleneck. 
So here's a simple plan that the president and Governor Gavin Newsom partnered with the private, if they partner with the private sector, labor, truckers, and everyone else in the chain must implement today to overwhelm the bottleneck and create yard space at the ports so we can operate against. First, executive order that if effective immediately that would override zoning rules in Long Beach and Los Angeles to allow truck yards to store empty containers up to six high instead of the current limit of two. Make it temporary for around 120 days. This will free up tens of thousands of chassis that are right now just storing containers on wheels. Those chassis can immediately be taken to the ports to haul away the containers. Two, Bring every container chassis owned by the National Guard or the military anywhere in the United States, United States to the ports and loan them to the terminals for 180 days. Three, create a new temporary container yard at a large, you need around 500 acres, he says, a large piece of government land adjacent to the inland railhead within 100 miles of the port complex. Four, force the railroads to haul all containers to this new site, turn around and come back. No more 1,500-mile train journeys to Dallas. We're doing 100-mile shuttles, turning around and doing it again. Truckles will go to this site to get containers instead of their port. Five, bring in barges and small container ships and start hauling containers out of Long Beach to other smaller ports that aren't backed up. This is not a comprehensive list. Please add to it. We don't need to, we need to, we don't need to do the best ideas. We need to do all the ideas. We must overwhelm the bottleneck and get these ports working again. I can't stress enough how bad it is for the world economy if the ports don't work. Every company selling physical goods bought or sold internationally will fail. The circulatory system of our globalized economy depend the dawn has collapsed. And thanks to the negative feedback loops involved, it's getting worse and not better every day that goes by. He adds one other observation to this thread later on. He says, The ports shutting down is worse than Lehman Brothers failing. Both can lead to catastrophic failures of all counterparties depending on them. But with Lehman, the government could just print tons of money and flood the banks with liquidity. Here, we need real-world solutions. And he's right on that. When you're talking about the supply chain and everything related to it, you're talking about real infrastructure. You're talking about hard items that we build, we use, and move things around. You're talking about a supply chain. You're talking about shipping, trucking, all the apparatus that moves things from one A to B, and then from B to C to you to the customer. Every last single thing is involved. And when you have, as he puts it, you know, you have these bottlenecks, all of a sudden the entire system goes down. And, and this is not just true of this port, although this is a major contributor here, it's, 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 it's everywhere where you've got these issues popping up everywhere. And you may have shortages of labor in one place or shortages, as he's pointing out here, you have the containers at this site causing issues. But the entire way through, it's a real world issue where you have real infrastructure at play. And so he's pointing out some really great options here. I actually agree with him on this. I think you need to do some of these things. I think you need to take some other things in there as well. Um, but whatever it is, you have to think of this in terms of a real-world fix. It, you know, it, it's, like, it's like the vaccine. When you hit the pandemic, you had to have a very real-world response to it. Now, we had other versions of our response where, you know, you were pumping money in, in, you know, into people's pockets, trying to help them survive a certain thing. And, you know, that's a very easy thing to do. We were just pushing liquidity into the system and giving people cash to survive. 
But in reality, the real response is, well, we need to make ventilators this month. How do we do that? The government does everything in its power to create ventilators. Then you're talking masks. Then, you know, you're, you're going along and you're talking about other things, you know, PPE, all these other things that, you know, all of a sudden you have this big need and you have to fill it really quick. And then finally, I mean, the most important of this is the vaccines. You had to fund all these different ideas to get a vaccine. We finally had three that we have here in the United States that we've used, even though we have other options. And then you have to pump those out and get them to the people. These are very real-world infrastructure things. You have to take an idea, move it into a product, and then pump it out into the, the public. So basically, you know, what I'm getting at here is that you have to think about when you're trying to survive, you know, you're trying to solve this, sort of like the vaccine. You have to think we need an operation, warp speed style operation that goes after these bottlenecks in the supply chain, finds fixes for them, and gets rid of the obstacles in the way. And some of these obstacles here, as he's pointing out, some of these obstacles are actually government policy. You have these local cities here setting these these ordinances on using zoning laws. And if they decide to enforce them, all of a sudden they're putting out they're putting people out of business in important parts of this infrastructure economy. So it points out how the government is standing in the way here. Now with Operation Warp Speed, we had some of the similar things happening there. We had timeline regulations and other things happening with the FDA and CDC where they had these unnecessary barriers that prevents, you know, life-changing medications from making it to market. And when you're in the middle of a pandemic, You can't let a bureaucrat prevent you from getting a a solution. That bureaucrat could be the the difference between saving lives and lives dying. And they're going to say, oh, you know, we have to do this for X, Y, and Z because this is important, but they're only protecting themselves. That was true in the pandemic with Operation Warp Speed and vaccines. It's still true with that because they've do, these same bureaucrats have delayed childhood vaccines, they've delayed boosters, so on and so forth. I mean, it's taken us a year after all the progress we made under Trump with Operation Warp Speed in just getting a vaccine and getting it into arms. It's taken that same amount of time, if not longer here, just to do things like boosters and get these things to kids. It's been ridiculous how the bureaucrats have tried to take back over here. And you see this with zoning laws and other things happening here, where the goal should be to remove these obstacles and to get these people out of the way. Now, in our circumstances here, solving the supply chain crunch at a port, that's going to, I mean, we're depending on people like Joe Biden and, ironically, his his transportation secretary, which no one thought at the time when when Biden stuck um, Pete Buttigieg into that role, it would actually matter. But it actually matters who that secretary is because we actually need somebody to do something there. But, you know, he's been out on paternity leave. And while that happens, there's a major crisis and he's nowhere to be found. And again, remember, this is one port just one. There are other smaller ones that are working probably just fine, but they're, you know, you got this one and you have others where there are major issues. And so I think part of the issue here is you also have manpower shortages. You may have trucking shortages where you have to, you know, get these things moved from A to B. And I think adding to his suggestions here, I think you have to have the president authorize the National Guard, maybe even go into pulling in the Army and some of them to be the actual manpower to move some of this stuff around where we actually need to move and get an actual supply chain style operation moving where you're getting things from point A to B. The other thing that I think is actually really interesting here 
and I haven't really seen anybody bring it up, is using the current infrastructure bill before Congress to try to push through some congressional fixes here. You've got this infrastructure bill. Everyone would like to to put it up, to to pass it, but you've got progressives holding that hostage because they want their big unicorn legislation in the Build Back Better plan. I actually think it would be smart here for Republicans, McConnell and McCarthy, in the Senate and the House, to think about taking that infrastructure bill that's there, taking it apart, and saying, you know, we're not interested in hitting inflation, but we do need to solve this supply chain crisis, and we have this ready to go. Let's just swap out some of the things here, add some things that we need here, maybe add some funding for the National Guard to do this, maybe add some funding to to get rid of some of these, these uh, containers, maybe, you know, create a new yard. You know, there are options here that Congress could take, could investigate, pass, and get through really quick. Politically, I also think this could be smart, too, because Republicans could almost probably effectively pass this against Democrats' will. I mean, this is something where you could say, Republican McConnell could say, you know, I want to pass this because we need to solve this this problem right now. I could see Cinema and, and, uh, and Manchin jumping on that right off the bat. You could probably also get moderates in the House on board with that. And just tell Republicans the same thing. Listen, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to force Biden to take our solution to this. And at the same time, if you do that, you can say, well, we'll pass this. And then once we pass this, we can ignore your Build Back Better plan. And I think you could effectively kill that other piece of legislation, which would be good. You get rid of something that would drive inflation while passing something that gets through some supply chain fixes on a congressional level. I think that would be a great way to solve some of these things. So, you know... If you're in, you know, if you're on white, if you're in that congressional circles, think about that. Maybe think about a way of taking that infrastructure bill and using it as a shell to shove through some solutions on this front. You could effectively divide and conquer here. You can say, hey, we can actually make some real good uh, solutions here, and that would break the logjam on the infrastructure bill while delivering a major defeat to progressives at the same time. I think there's a lot of solutions in here that you could plug in here. You could use some of the things uh, suggested by Ryan Peterson, give some congressional weight to some of that stuff. There's just a lot of things that could be done here, I think, or at least need to be done. He's talking about some of these things that probably need to be executive orders, and he's right, because you've, you've got local cities with these dumb zoning laws. And in California and, and dumb zoning laws are things that just go hand in hand. None of their zoning laws make any sense, and, and half of their zoning laws are causing all the problems that they have today. So these are things that need to be fixed. He's probably right. You're going to have to throw some executive orders in there and just get this fixed because this is a major threat. And it's a major threat because when you're talking about supply chains and inflation, and when those two things go hand in hand, when you have a shortage of stuff, which is what we have right now, of we have shortages of everything that, that are happening in, in a random order just because it depends on you know how things are shipped with these containers and what's unloaded and who gets what, when and where. When you're dealing with stuff like that, you have shortages and combined with increasing inflation, it's a pretty toxic mix. It's particularly a toxic mix when you're talking about something basic. Because, you know, you've got people going to the grocery stores right now, and they're seeing shortages on their shelves, where one week they'll be able to find something there, and the next week they won't. Or, you know, something basic like hamburger meat. You know, you can't buy that without practically, you know, paying an arm and a leg at this point. And people feel 
these types of impacts. In fact, I, w- I was on Facebook the other day, and I saw a, a you know, it's basically just a, it was just a meme page. You know, they post funny things all the time, but they don't post political things. They rarely post anything even touching slightly on politics. But this one was a meme about the price of meat. And, you know, they they had these little, you know, you look at a, at a, a package of fresh ground hamburger, you know, with, it's got the styrofoam and the plastic wrapping over the top, you know, and they had these little packages of it where it was about the size of a quarter holding it between their fingers saying, hell yeah, here's hamburger meat. It's now, you know, this is $10 of the pack. And you're looking at that little pack and it's $10. And, you know, it's a funny meme, but it's interesting that people who don't talk in politics, don't make jokes about politics, are talking about the price of food because that has gone up. Hamburger, you know, just in general, meat prices, and if you, you go and look at the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics stuff, they will tell you beef across the board has gone up. Uh, meat in general has gone up, and we've seen shortages and, and all kinds of stuff playing there. What I'm trying to get across to you is that these things are seeping through every part of society. When you go out to shop now, you're seeing these shortages firsthand. Every time you go into a grocery store and you're making your purchasing decisions, anytime you're making general, and just maybe just any kind of purchase decision right now, you're weighing these higher costs. There was a report in the Wall Street Journal this past week, and it said on food, people could accept price increases up to a point. The general rule of thumb is that if price increases have gone up about 5%, that's when behavior starts changing. That's when people start changing how they buy things. And we've seen this on things like hamburger meat and all kinds of beef. People have changed how they are buying and dealing with that because it's just way more expensive. Now, if it's just one category like that, maybe you just eat that one higher cost and you try to save money elsewhere. When it's everything, that's a different story. And what the journal report was saying is that right now, if you look at everything in a grocery store, we're up about 4.5% of where we were about a year ago. So we're right on that line of where people's behavior, when you go in, you're making these decisions, you start saying, I've got to change what I've got to buy now because I can't get the same things that I did before. It's too expensive, so I've got to shop smartly for me. And so when every decision you make, when every single purchasing decision that you make reminds you of who is in charge, that has dramatic effects politically. Every time something goes across a scanner in the grocery store and you're just watching it go across, beep, 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 every single one of those reminds you of who's in charge of the country. And you feel that. That's why you see these, you know, let's go Brandon chants. I'm not going to say the full thing there, but that's why you're seeing these things. I mean, if you look right now at the real clear politics average of Joe Biden's approval ratings, they've tanked. He's looking at job disapproval ratings that are about to touch, that are above 52% right now. They're hanging right around that 52% line. And his approval ratings, which started about three months ago going down, I mean, they were trending downhill slightly, but they, you know, they started with Afghanistan where his numbers have tanked. Well, no, people aren't talking about Afghanistan anymore. 
That's out of the news, unfortunately. There are Americans still trapped over there, but it's out of the news. And his numbers are still tanking. They're still going down, and it's going down at a moment when inflation is really a major driver right now because you're beginning to hit that line where decisions matter. It's where people are making these purchasing decisions, and they're saying, my life is now different because of inflation. And they're blaming Biden for this, by the way. You can look at any of these polls, and they all say the same thing. There are people, More and more people are blaming Biden every single day because they need to know about these supply chain disruptions. They may know a person who works in a grocery store or a manager who tells them about this. They see in the news that they, nothing's happening at these ports. And then they see a president who takes no questions and is not addressing the situation. They see a transportation secretary who does nothing. He may give a couple of speeches, but nothing's happening. And more to the point, it's unclear that they, they care. You had White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. He he was sharing things about inflation, calling uh, you know sharing pieces on Twitter, calling this a high class problem, meaning that you you know these are just issues where we've done such a good job responding to the pandemic that now we have higher demand. So this is a good thing. It's a good thing. The press secretary, Jen Psaki, is pushing the same line here, saying this is a good thing. You, you know, we've done a good job. And so, you know, look at people over here. They're getting cost of living increases on, on Social Security. That's a good thing. The problem is that inflation is going so up that it's eating through cost of living increases when you're seeing in, when you're looking at Social Security. People who are getting pay wage increases... Wages are not going up fast enough to keep up with inflation. Calling this a good thing dramatically underplays how serious this is. The price of food matters. It's one of the most important things in all of politics. You may remember about a decade ago, uh, we had the Arab Spring, and that's where we had all these uprisings across the Middle East. One of the very first factors that drove all those uprisings, that had everyone across, you know, all those different countries that saw those uprisings, a lot of them didn't, I mean, they have some things in common, but you're talking about different countries, different things happening. But there was one thing uniting them all. And that was the fact that they were experiencing dramatically high food prices and no clear solutions from their governments. You had people who couldn't afford basic things like bread or vegetables. And that, you know, you cannot downplay that. And they started overturning their government. These people started protesting in the streets, and they were willing to keep at it because they were hungry. There are, of course, a lot of other things that are playing there, but that was one of those early things. You may have a lot of grievances with your government, a long list of things, but you may be willing to live with it as long as you're eating and you can live fine. The moment that's gone... You're going to look around and say, well, what am I doing here with them? What are they even doing if I cannot even eat? This happened the same way in, in, the, in the French Revolution as well. The thing, one of the things that helped push that even further over the edge, because the French had had clashes with you know, the, you know, the poor and the rich in their country for generations prior to the revolution. But they had a really bad set of circumstances where they had famines, they had bad harvest, and all of a sudden the people couldn't eat anymore. 
I was recently reading A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, and he hammers that early on. It's not; it wasn't just the treatment of how the people were, you know, were getting by by the rich nobles in France. It's the fact that they had nothing to eat either, and the stuff that they did have. You're talking bad bread, you're talking bad food, old moldy bread, or your bad wine, bad water. You cannot live. Even when you overthrow these people, that you can't do anything. Once the French Revolution wrapped up and you have Napoleon rise to power, one of the one of the first things he did, one of the very first things he did, among you know, he did a lot of stuff, but one of the things he did is he established key granaries. Strategic places where people could always, he could always make sure that the price of bread was controlled, where he people had affordable food, because he understood that key point. You cannot allow your population to get hungry. You must make sure that is taken care of, because if it's not, you face severe consequences. And we were on the verge of this too, by the way, in America particularly during the Great Depression, you had things like Hoover Towns popping up, and they were calling them Hoover Towns because of the, from the president, Herbert Hoover. They blamed the entire Depression upon him, the lack of response from the government, so on and so forth. And one of the things, and we're going to get to his inaugural speech here, one of the things FDR had to do with his first inaugural was get people to buy back into the American system because you had things like fascism and communism running amok in Europe, because of all the things happening over there. And they were beginning to get a toehold in America as well. And so, you know, the New Deal, whether or not it worked economically, I think is a little bit beside the point because it worked politically. It got people to buy back in, which in turn gave, gave, gave the government time to get a response and, you know, get people to doing things that got them to believe in America again. Those sorts of things are important. If you prefer your biblical examples, look no further than the Old Testament with Joseph in Egypt. Joseph, you know, they gathered the grain for seven years, and then when the famine hit for another seven, he ruled everything because he controlled the grain. Egypt was fine, and people had to go to him for their food. These things matter. Food matters. Now, I get in America, you live in a land of plenty. This is not as much of a big thing. So thinking of these things is almost a little abstract. But people here are experiencing it kind of for the first time in several generations where you're going into a store and you're like, I've never been into a store and they not had something. And they haven't had something for specific reasons here that you can trace back to an administration's decisions. So for, for this administration to use phrases like high-class problems or say, you know, the irony here is that they've moved from there is no inflation to inflation is only a short-term thing to now they're saying talking about the various ways that inflation is good. Um, for them to dismiss it like this is very dangerous politically. It's very dangerous for the health of a country and the political system when the leadership discards these kinds of things. You can ignore hungry, hungry bellies at your own peril. You have to make sure people are fed. You have to make sure they can get what they need to live on a daily basis. Those are the very basic things that a country must do and a leadership must do. And so that's why it's going to require something here. Congress is going to have to step in. You're going to have to see Biden step in here. And they've got to do it very soon because because I think he's right when you're talking about uh, Peterson's points here. This has to happen now because all you're seeing are these ports get backed up even further. And we have to get our stuff fixed because 
you know, I've spent the last two weeks talking about what's happening over in China with the real estate meltdown, and we've got a reprieve right now. Evergrande is saying, well, we've paid off one of these. Uh, we've got these hints of maybe the timeline doesn't quite match up with some of these others. I don't know what that means. No one really knows what it means. There are still other payments due. There are some that are very large that are due. They're able to get past this first one. But even over this next week, there are other real estate, smaller real estate developers in China that are expecting to fail. The question is, what happens with Evergrande? The question is, what happens when you have all this supply draft, you know, dry up? What happens across the rest of the Chinese economy? Because they have energy shortages, too. They've got other issues happening across their economy. Uh, and, you know, they're part of the problem here with the supply chain stuff. So the more they back up, the more we back up. You have to hit the, the things that you, you have to fix the things you can fix. And we have to fix our part of this because it's causing its own issues. And then we can go and pressuring on to pressuring things like China. But... For right now, we've got our own issues, and we need our own administration to step up to the plate here. And we need to do that before you start seeing serious political consequences here. Because it's not just about, you know, I already expect Republicans to do well in the midterms. When you start facing issues where there are shortages and people are hungry or people aren't getting the things that they need, you're talking about a breakdown of the system itself, where people lose faith in the American system. And that is a far more dangerous issue. That is something you don't want to face as a society, it's one thing for there to be political fallout. The system is designed to handle that, perfectly designed to handle that. It's another thing when people lose face in the entire system itself. That is a dangerous place to be in, and that's why they need to get ahead and start addressing this now. So on that, uh, the light item, as I, as I hinted at the front, is FDR's 1933 inaugural speech. Uh, I wanted to hit this mainly because I wanted to play his speech uh, it's pretty good. Uh, this is going to start a little bit in the middle of this. He spends the first half of it hammering away at the money changers, or the, you know, because they had the banking collapse then, with the stock market collapse, and so he's going after Wall Street in the beginning of his speech. Uh, and this clip kind of picks up a little way through that, and then he starts talking about what they're going to do. And this is, you know, this is what he's doing here is laying down the political groundwork to get people to buy back into the American system because you have people looking at things like Hoover Towns. It's 1933, so you've already got the outbreak of communism in places like Russia. It's sweeping across other places in Europe. You've got, you know, you got the wars happening in China. You've got, and you've got fascism in Italy. You've got, you know, you have the rise of Hitler happening. And so all these things are happening here at a moment of great economic upheaval. And so getting Americans to buy back into the American system. Instead of going off and chasing some of these other ideologies that you saw happening in Europe, was crucial. Because without that, who knows how you know World War II would have gone? If you don't have Americans believing in the actual American system, what side are we actually fighting on at the end there? So what happens here is very important. So this is his speech. This is FDR's speech in nineteen thirty-three. I think the actual economic argument for what the New Deal did is pretty weak. I think the political argument for what it did was very was pretty strong, much stronger because it got people to believe in America again, and that is of utmost importance during these. You have to recognize these periods when they come. So here is FDR speech. Like I said, this starts a little bit way through it. He talks about how he's talking about money changers and how they abdicated their role in society, and now he starts building towards 
what he's going to do with Congress. So here's FDR 1933. Obviously, this is old, so the audio is a little, you know, crummy on this, but you can hear it pretty clear, I think. So here he is. Their failure and have abdicated. Practices of the unscrupulous money changers stand indicted in the court of public opinion, rejected by the hearts and minds of men. True, they have tried, but their efforts have been cast in the pattern of an outworn tradition. Faced by failure of credit, they have proposed only the lending of more money, stripped of the lure of profit by which to induce our people to follow their false leadership. They have resorted to exhortation, pleading carefully for restored confidence. They only know the rules of a generation of self-seekers. They have no vision, and when there is no vision, the people perish. Yes, the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truth. The measure of that restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values, more noble than mere monetary profit. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort, the joy, the moral stimulation of work, no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent profit. These dark recognition of that falsity of material wealth as the standard of success goes hand in hand with the abandonment of the false belief that public office and high political positions are to be valued only by the standards of pride of place and personal profit. And there must be an end to a conduct in banking and in business which too often has given to a sacred trust the likeness of callous and selfish wrongdoing. So there is FDR's speech, or at least a portion of it, and the rest of it. He kind of goes off into detailing some of the things he's going to do with Congress. Uh, obviously, I don't want to go through all that there. It eventually becomes the first versions of the New Deal, as he would end up calling it. And the reason I highlighted that speech, though, is, is what he's doing there. You, you know, you see, you see him talking about the importance of work, the importance of creativity, the importance of doing things, and it's not just about money and all these different things. And you may recognize some of those types of themes and things that really you see in, in modern speeches. Um, but the key thing, the key thing here is that he's getting the people to buy into working with him and working in that system towards these goals. And doing that within the American framework, which is not what you were seeing with other countries at that time. They were not doing the same thing. So that that's, you know, it ends up teeing things up to where Americans buy back into to everything. It takes a very long time. That's basically a lost decade there. You don't really see the American economy pull back out until the, until the start of World War II. Uh, and so that's obviously not good. But by the time all that wraps up, you get the prosperity of the 50s. You get people to buy in at the right time. 
you don't want people losing faith in the American system because it works. And when you introduce these types of things, you know, the various supply chain things here, it can cause people to lose faith. And you don't want that to happen at all because it's important that they do. Um, I want to read off one other thing here because it's it's something that while I was preparing the podcast, I saw. So this will be the parting thought here. Um, this is from a former Chuck Schumer senator staff, you know, senator of New York, one of his staffers, or at least one of the people relate, you know, involved in his inner circle. Uh, so this is a Democrat, and he says the following. If you're asking the president to intervene in the supply chain, you're advocating for socialism. If you're blaming, blaming him for prices, you don't have a clue about capitalism. So that's a stupid remark. And it's obviously got all these thousands upon thousands of likes from lefties. Um, if a person says something like that, just know that you're talking to a complete and utter moron. The reason the president has to intervene here is because the U.S. government caused most of these issues with the supply chain. This is all coming off of the pandemic. The U.S. government forcibly shut down the U.S. economy. During that time, it forcibly shut down the entire supply chain. So you started having all these backups. During the middle of that, you started asking a supply chain to get you materials and resources for other things. We had the, the ventilator shortage. We had the various paper product shortages. We had all kinds of shortages. And the supply chain had to bob and weave to get around those kinds of things. And it did that for, you know, it's done that for basically about a year and a half. Then the government starts to reopen things and allow things to happen again. And all of a sudden, once people are going back out and doing their normal things, you have demand. So before you had low demand because people weren't doing their normal things. Now you have comparatively high demand. And it's actually higher than before because people now have had all their demand pent up for about two years now. And they're really ready to get out and do things. So now the supply chain is having to, to respond to not just what it normally used to do, but now doubly what it used to do all while it's still trying to reopen and get back up to speed. All caused by the U.S. government and all the other governments across the world, some of which have still closed off things uh, and are not allowing things like places like China. So that's not socialism. That's called fixing a problem that you created. And these are problems that are continuing to be created. Like, you know, like we just pointed out here, part of the issue in the L.A. port, part of the issue is government zoning laws. Now, as a result of all of this, prices are skyrocketing because the supply is short. That is basic supply and demand. You know, one of the points I like to make to people is that capitalism is not really a belief system. Capitalism is just, it's a basic rules of supply and demand. You can fight them all you want to, but if you want to make sure that it's operating as smoothly as it is, so that you have a good running economy, that's effectively capitalism because you cannot beat the supply and demand curve. It is true at all points in time. So what we're seeing, once again, in these issues with the political actors, is that they're all complete and utter morons when it comes to this stuff. Fixing this is not a socialist problem. Fixing this is trying to get it back to working order. It's fixing something that the government broken, and fixing it's going to require government intervention because some of the obstacles in the way were created by the government, and only it can remove them. And in some cases here, because things were shut down for about a year and a half, we're looking at worker shortages. So, in few, you know, channeling some of the, these National Guard people into the NEC's positions is helping move the ball here just to get us out of a backlog situation. So, 
all of this is frustrating when you're looking at it just because people want to retreat to their comfortable corners. But we do need real hard solutions here. We need super hard solutions here that are real infrastructure-based. I'm concerned we're actually not going to get them because I'm. this government is not quite as responsive as the one under FDR. FDR saw it as his sole goal to get everything back up and running in and get people to believe in the American system and churn out a new deal. The new deal is all about buying back in. This administration is basically doing a speed run of the Carter years, so at the end of it, we're probably going to say the Carter years are better. Hopefully we get it fixed, but I think those are some ideas on how to get there. That's all I've got for this week, though. If you've got your own ideas, feel free to fire them into me. I'm happy to hear them. Questions, other questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.